The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the politics? Go ahead. Make my day. Hello to all and welcome to the latest episode of Black Hole Cinema with myself, Tony Black. And we're back to normal this week after a couple of special weeks for Godzilla and X-Men Days of Future Past, which I do hope you all stayed after the credits to see the extra sting at the end, because everyone's gone and seen Days of Future Past. As you'll see from the top ten when I talk about that, it's made something like 90 million domestic in America and it's made quite a bit over here as well in the UK. It's been a romping, stomping hit, much like Godzilla was the week before. So everyone's been to see these films, which delights me because they're both very good. But hopefully you stay to the very end of Days of Future Past because I think the final credits, post-credits sting of that is one of the most exciting that I've seen in quite a while, actually. And uh, I've, I've been looking it up, trying to recapture it on YouTube and things. It's very good, it's very good. So, so yeah, back to normal. A few films to be reviewed this week. And as I say, we'll be getting into the UK top 10 talking about that. There'll also be a guest appearance by somebody talking about their favourite film later on. But before that, I just want to briefly talk to you about something that I've just experienced that I need to sort of vent about. I know I've been talking to you in previous weeks about the films I've been watching lately. And, you know, I've, I have been uh, catching up on a few, although my target for, for May was to watch the same as I did or more in April, which was around 60 films, and I'm not going to get anywhere near that because I'm, I'm currently at 42 with about two or three days to go, so I'm not going to hit that target, but I think 42 is fairly reasonable. But I'm not going to talk to you about all the films I've watched like I have done in previous weeks because I think it's something that I don't think you'll be bothered about either way, really, and it'll probably cut time on the podcast. But I am going to try and talk maybe about one or two every week that really stand out, either being amazingly good or, in this case so bad that I don't think we've invented a word yet that describes it because bad doesn't do this film justice bad is is actually an insult to this film it, it, it's beyond that now the film I'm talking about is Run For Your Wife which is a 2012-13 film with Danny Doyle as Mark Kermode likes to call him. Sorry, I've just nicked that completely, but I can't help it, because every time I hear... It's a bit like the Matt Damon thing. You know a lot from Team America, wherever you hear Matt Damon, it's always Matt Damon. Now, I always do that. Matt Damon. Now, thanks to Mark Kermode, I always go, Danny Dyer, whenever I hear his voice. So, <laughs> yeah, Danny Dyer's in this, in this film. And it was one I'd heard about, actually, through Kermode reviews, and since people on Letterboxd have been reviewing it. And somebody reviewed it yesterday, and just you know there was conversation being talked about afterwards it was one of the worst things that he'd ever seen and my friend and occasional guest on Black Hole Cinema Matt Latham suggested that I watch all Danny Dyer films all of them which I don't think he likes me very much for actually putting that in my head he clearly can't but he has and I'm going to try and do my best to do that I did watch Vendetta last year which was terrible and I don't know if I've seen any more of his, but there's more Danny Dyer starring films. But this one, this one, he's genuinely going to struggle to beat in terms of how bad it is. Run for Your Wife is basically about a bigamist, a taxi driving bigamist who gets a whack on the head when he's trying to save an old woman from being mugged. An old woman, astoundingly, who apparently is played by Judy Dench. I, I'll get I'll get to this in a minute, but there are an unbelievable amount of cameos in this, and I will talk about those in, in a second. But yeah, he gets a whack on the head and he forgets where he is, and he ends up getting into a whole heap of trouble when both of his wives realise he's late home and he has to remember which one he's talking he's talking to and where he lives and things like that. And it's and he gets caught up in this farce as the police get involved and all these myriad lot, lot of neighbours. You know, Christopher Biggins is this really camp neighbour on the one wife's side Neil Morrissey is just this annoying twat from downstairs on the other who basically just keeps getting him into trouble and it just it it's you know you know when you ever watch a comedy film and it's not funny and you sit there I had this experience with one of the films 
that I'm going to review next, actually. But not, not nearly to this extent. But there are times when you're sitting there thinking, that should be funny and it's not. Why isn't that? That, that should be funny and it's not. Well, in this case, Run For Your Wife shouldn't be funny and it isn't. And it's one of those films where you're, you're thinking, hang on a minute. This, because it, it's apparently from a very successful stage play. You know, it's directed by Ray Cooney, who uh, did this on stage many years ago. And it was very good, apparently. It was very funny. It was very successful. It worked. It was a good farce. But in film, it completely loses that comic context. It completely loses the staging. It completely loses the, the sense of timing. And it's just... It is one of those things that... It is terrible. You know, it's, you, know you get films where, you know, some of them have got... Are so bad, they're actually quite fun. Well, this isn't. This isn't. This is just so bad. It's not fun. And it's not funny. And it's not enjoyable. But yeah, it's something that I really think you have to see to believe. I don't. It's a bit like you know. You know. Remember when some people said, "No, we can't tell you what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself." This is this is this. I can't explain how bad Run for Your Wife is. You've got to watch this for yourself to understand how bad this is. This makes The Room, the Tommy Wiseau infamous Tommy Wiseau film, look like a comic Citizen Kane compared to this. I must finish just talking about this because I, I made a note of all the cameos in this film because it's got a million cameos. As I, as I mentioned, Judy Dench, which is just... I, I just don't understand. I, I can only presume her family were kidnapped and she was blackmailed. But anyway, this is the list of the cameos of people who, if you're a British person and you've ever watched television, you will recognise almost all of these names. Barry Cryer, Rolf Harris... Vicky Michelle, or René, you know, from Alolo, and weirdly, she executive produces this. That's very strange. Ross Abbott, Nicky Henson, Bernard Cribbins, who is better than most things he's in, and uh, Richard Bryars, again. I, this might even be, be have been his last film role. Imagine that. Brian Murphy, June Whitfield, Maureen Lipman, Sue Pollard, Andrew Sachs, Derek Folds, Robin Asquith, uh, some bloke who was in the bill, you'll, you'll know him when you see him. Sylvia Sims, Sir Donald Sindon, who I don't think has been in anything for about 40 years, Wendy Craig, Geoffrey Palmer, Linda Barron, Frank Thornton, again, probably his last film role before he died, Bill Pertwee, did he, did he, didn't he die, Bill Pertwee, I'm sure he died, anyway, Tony Britton, Wanda Ventham, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's mom, Darren Nesbitt, Louise Jameson, Timothy West, Prunella Scales, Tom Conti, Dennis Waterman, and, and then, as I say, Judy Dench, it, it all of those people, right, are people that you grew up watching or you've seen on television in Britain or you've seen in films. And they're good. They're good, funny comic actors and actresses. And they're in Run For Your Wife. It's, it is beyond belief. So if, I'll, get, I'll set you a challenge now. If you're a true film fan and you listen to this podcast and you like movies, it's on Netflix. If you're, it's, it's on UK Netflix right now. This is what made me go and watch it. Go and watch Run For Your Wife. Because you, I don't genuinely think you're a true fan of cinema unless you sit down and you watch that film from beginning to end. Because, as I think my written review said, I actually once died, nearly died of an infected chicken pox scar and that was more fun than watching Run For Your Wife. Anyway, th I'm glad I've got that out of my system. Should we do some reviews now? First review this week from The Black Hole is a comedy, apparently. The new Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore movie blended my name is jim i'm lauren got you buffalo shrimp with sauce on the side look oh. oh. oh, at my sauce is hot did you drink my beer can you get me some water here have some french onion soup <laughs> yes. No more dating for me. It's time I should be spending with my kids. Wanna shoot some hope? Yeah! Oh! I say comedy apparently because apparently Adam Sandler's funny. And this is something I've never ever quite understood. And I still don't really understand. I don't think I've ever truly found the man funny in anything. I confess I haven't watched all of his films. And the one I haven't watched, which people keep telling me is his best one, is Punch Drunk Love, which is obviously Paul Thomas Anderson. And I will get round to that one day. He may be funny in that. But the ones I have seen him in, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I've never got it. I've never understood it. He's occasionally comical. And he's occasionally funny. But I've never understood why he's become this massive comedy star. This massive multi-million comedy star, in fact. 
because he makes crap. He makes such crap all the time. And in fact, as, as many people have pointed out, he seems to be making more crap the more time passes and the older he gets. And if Blended's any indication, it's because he stopped really giving a shit. You know, he, he stopped caring. Maybe, maybe he stopped caring when he made Jack and Jill, I don't know. But he's, he re- it really seems like he's just given up the, go- the ghost a bit. And he's so laid back in the roles he plays that it doesn't really seem to impact anything. Blended obviously reunites him with Drew Barrymore after The Wedding Singer and Fifty First Dates. It's funny enough, I, I, I watched Fifty First Dates a year ago. I was around with friends. We had to get Netflix going. I think it was Netflix or something like that. And we had to pick a film each. And everyone else had to watch that film. And my friend Dawson, because he's a big girl, wanted us to watch Fifty First Dates. And, I, and it, it wasn't actually too bad. It, it, was, it was all right. It was, it was relatively okay. It's not really my kind of film. But it was okay, and I think the reason I quite enjoyed it in in places was the fact that it had Sandler and Barrymore, and they do have a chemistry. They do have a certain chemistry on screen, and they have this this easygoing, laid-back kind of banter between them, and and a certain spark. And, And that is in Blended, but it's not enough to sustain a comedy film. And, you know, he felt that in Fifty First Dates. Fifty First Dates at least had a more of an interesting hook than this. This basically has them as both a pair of people who've got families who've got children and they're trying to raise them as single parents drew barrymore would basically married a dickhead who doesn't really want to be there for his kids and adam sandler lost his wife to cancer and they go on this first date this horrendous first date at hooters which is which is mildly funny and then they end up through the most contrived circumstances going on the same package deal holidays this african resort which is all about blending people together it's all about you know romance the children like coming together as as families and it's it's such a such a <laughs> such a massively contrived idea that would never happen in the real world but this is hollywood and you know okay you know you, it's it's a film you can forgive that it's a comedy film it's got a premise it's got a setup fine okay but it's just so obvious in every respect that it never becomes anything of interest it really doesn't it's not crude it's not gross out it's a bit slapstick but it's very safe slapstick it's very mild slapstick there's the odd risque joke and funnily enough when i was at the screening i went to see this in it was dead it was an early screening on, a, on admittedly on a tuesday but this in in half term so you'd imagine more people would be out of work you know not working and things like that but it was dead it was absolutely dead and there was maybe about four of the people ultimately in the cinema and it, there was a family. There was well, it seemed like a, a mother and a son, or a mother and a couple of children. And it was a bit awkward when there were certain jokes that were clearly a bit risque, and they were sitting not far behind me. And I was I was cringing a little bit, going, "This isn't really suitable for kids." But it, at the same time, though, it wasn't edgy. And I think Blended at times thought it was, and it really isn't. It's it's not so it's not offensive. It's it's very sentimental it's very schmaltzy you know there are moments where sandler's actually bonding with his kids and his kids are actually quite sweet actually especially the little girl and there are moments where you you know you you, you do you do get a little bit heartwarmed it, it's not like a real impact on you but there are moments when you, you you do like them i mean that that's that's i'll give that it's the credit to that you do like the characters by and large they are quite likable and when we reach the inevitable conclusion, which I won't tell you, but if you've got literally, literally got a brain, you will be able to figure out how this ends long before you get there. By the end of it, you know you don't begrudge the fact that there is there is a happy ending because there is a happy ending. I'm not, you know, oh people might have a go at me for spoilers, but come on, come on, okay? This was never going to end with a truck piling into Adam Sandler's house, killing him and his kids. I mean, let, let's be honest. So there is a happy ending at the end of it. But it's, so it's more about the journey to get to where we're going. And the journey is quite, you know, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's, it's occasionally puts a smile on your face. It's the occasional laugh. I'd be lying if I said I didn't laugh. There was one joke where Adam Sandler gets confused about whether or not Drew Barrymore was a lesbian. And that, 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 that was quite well written. I did chuckle a bit at that. But the rest of it is just very, very, very bland, obvious trying too hard although admittedly i say trying too hard it's so laid back it's horizontal this whole thing is just so chilled out it's too chilled out if anything they're too comfortable barrymore and sandler sandler like i say sandler stopped trying so 
their scenes are good, but it's all just too easy. You know, they, you can tell they had a good time making it. And as several critics have pointed out, Mark Kermode among them, if people look like they're enjoying making comedy, it's probably not very good comedy. And it was the, the same could be said for the other woman. You know, they they clearly had a blast making the other woman. And it was horrendous. Blended is nothing near that bad. It really isn't. It's a, it's far more likable, and it's it it is funnier. But it's also got a horrendous, horrendous element of racism in it. I mean, it's I have to mention this because they go to this African resort, you know, this contrived place I mentioned before, and literally, literally everyone there is dressed like Desmond Tutu or you know or, or mixed with Nelson Mandela. They all speak like this. Oh, welcome to Africa. You know, they, they literally, literally they do. Or they've got that South African, come on, dear, have a message. You know, and then there's this, oh, my God, there's this guy who sings all the time. He sings constantly. You're going to be blended. or oh, let's get blended. You're going to be blended. He, he is the most irritating person I've ever, 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 ever seen on a film for a long time. Oh, my God. So if you if you can survive him, then you you can survive the film because he constantly keeps cropping up, and it's supposed to be funny, and you just want to kill him with your bare hands. So it is it has got this horrendous sort of American style racism that wouldn't that that is the kind of oh that's clearly Africa is just safaris and men with black faces will talk like this, and it you know and it that's the point where you're going oh my god. This is where you're mining the comedy from. So there isn't much comedy to be had. There isn't much laugh to be had. There, there is nothing more to say about Blended except the fact it is completely missable. It's one of those films that you could probably just watch on an afternoon if it's on the television and there's nothing else to do. Or you're looking for a very easy, very safe, romantic comedy that isn't going to get anyone's back up. But it's just... Yeah. <laughs> Okay, it's that time of the show again where I look at the UK box office top 10. Now, I've skipped a week because of the Marvel special that we did last week in which the top 10 wasn't done. But it was pretty much an obvious story in that Godzilla just stormed and stomped its way to the top of the charts. But this week, it's a slightly more interesting story because we had two massive blockbusters coming in at the same time. So it makes for a slightly different picture. To kick off, though, at number 10, we have a brand new entry... Well, a returning entry in that the Lego movie has crept back into the top 10. After falling beyond it, it's been still playing in cinemas, you know, since it came out in February, it's still there, it's still having showings because the kids just can't get enough of it and quite frankly, quite a lot of the adults can't. So this is its 15th week in the charts and it has made in Britain alone 33.5 million, which is an enormous amount of money. And obviously it's a stonking hit worldwide and... Quite rightly, because it's it's lovely. It's a great film, and it really deserves all the praise it's got and all the money it's done. And it'll be great to see the sequel one day. So it's nice to see that like, that kids are still going to see the Lego Movie, and it's still hanging on in there. Although I can't imagine it will go much higher than that. At number nine, dropping a lot of places from number three, is the Amazing Spider-Man Two, and inevitably the bottom has now fallen out of that dominance because of the other new blockbusters that have been creeping in. And after its six week in the chart, it's now on its way out I've talked before about how I think Spider-Man 2 is a very very mixed bag and the longer that people dissect this film and the longer time passes I'm noticing more and more people are starting to say the same thing in that it's actually not a great film at all and at first the hyperbole was out there and people were going yeah this is brilliant and I think people are starting to realise that actually it's not as good as the last one and mm, it's a bit of a mixed bag so now the bubble's burst. It's still done well. It's still made $23.6 million overall. I don't think it's done quite as well as Captain America, but I'd have to check that. But that Captain America's gone now. But yes. A number eight down three places from number five, where it started last week, is The Two Faces of January, starring Viggo Mortensen and Kirsten Dunst as a pair of grifters in the 1950s, I think. Now, I haven't actually seen this one. This is one that's kind of skipped me by because of various different timings it's been on that I haven't been able to quite make. But I've heard fairly good things about it, in that it's it's not a bad little uh, drama. So I'm sure I'll get to see it one day. I imagine that it'll 
it'll drop out at the end of this week. It's made near near enough a million, which is probably as all as all it was really going to do for a fairly art house movie. So. Yeah, that's down three places. And number seven, dropping three places itself from number four, is The Other Woman, which, well, I'm not going to repeat my thoughts on The Other Woman, but for me, is the worst film of the year yet, from what I've seen. And it's going to take something truly run from your wife, Dyer, <laughs> I think, to beat it. So, at number six, holding firm at... The sixth place is Rio 2, which is still hanging on in there. It's still doing well. The kids are still going to see it. Eighth week in the in the charts now. It's made nearly 14 million. So it shouldn't probably remain that much longer. But I still think it's got maybe a week or two left in the charts, quite possibly, before it plummets out. Still doing okay. And number five, a new entry, first of two new entries, is blended with, obviously, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. And I won't talk at length about this one because you've heard my review earlier in this podcast but suffice to say I think Blended will be around for maybe two two three weeks tops and it will be gone because I don't really think it's going to get higher than number five I'd be surprised because it's not really very good and number four new entry Postman Pat the movie now it's funny because I don't actually plan to see this because I did used to love Postman Pat growing up but I'm not really that interested in seeing the film, especially given I keep hearing rumours and talk that it's actually not really very Postman Pat at all. And that it just takes a lot of like X-Factor gags and, and really does some really strange thing like with robot pats and stuff like that. It's, it sounds a little bit like the classic idea that, that movies just take something that people loved and do something completely different with it to the point where it doesn't become what it was that they loved. So I'm not having a go at it because I haven't seen it, so I can't judge, but... It's not something I'm dying to see. It could still, it could be in there for a while, but it hasn't done amazing business. But then it has come out at a very, very, very difficult time for any film to break into the top that isn't one of the top two. So could still be in there. It might do a bit better next week, but we'll see. And number three, dropping a place, is Bad Neighbours, which has so far made $13.5 And that's simply because of the massive extended long weekend, eight-day viewing figure count, the reason it went so high. But he's still doing fairly well. And, you know, it's, I liked it. I liked Bad Neighbours. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. And it's nothing, nothing amazing. It's nothing, nothing that's going to change the face of comedy. It's not even Seth Rogen's best film. But it was, it was a good laugh. So, yeah. It's, uh, it, I think that will start to drop eventually now soon. But, yeah, it's, it's worth seeing if you haven't. At two, number two, then, at second place, dropping a place, inevitably, is Godzilla. Now, Godzilla came storming in last week with a, by the look of it, about a nine million weekend which is stunning you know not many get that much and so it's done great business it's made nearly three million this weekend and it will it will remain high for quite some time i imagine godzilla it will still be around and as i said in uh, my previous podcast godzilla's very good you know it's 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 very very good in places it's it's well worth seeing it's a it's a good translation of the and of the of the godzilla mythos and it's it deserves to be high up so if you haven't checked out Godzilla and there surely aren't many people who haven't checked out Godzilla now but if you haven't go see it and number one then inevitably is X-Men Days of Future Past which I'm delighted about and we all knew that it was going to happen we all knew it was going to romp home it's actually probably done better though than people think we, uh, Days of Future Past I think you know, in about a week it's made about 300 million in the US alone or something stupid like that it's made a lot of money anyway it's made 9 million opening weekend here similar to Godzilla and it's it stand it, it stands to be a romping hit, probably the biggest X Men hit for quite some time, and, and it could go it could go quite high actually the the, the box office for this, which is really good because I really liked it. I'm hearing a lot now about nitpicks from people, and normally I'd I'd get annoyed at nitpicking, but in this case I do understand the points because there is a lot of continuity errors and timelines and questions that blatantly aren't answered that should be answered the biggest being how the hell is professor x the old professor x alive there's lots and lots of little things and i've been talking to several people i know about this and i completely understand why they're a little bit frustrated but i think the best way to approach days of future past is to go in and knowing that it's not going to answer all these questions for you and you may get a little bit frustrated on that level but if you do if you can do that then i think you'll enjoy quite a romping stomping x-men film but as i said in my review, make sure you stay till the end of the credits. It's a long, 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 long credit list, but stay till the end because there's a little treat at the end, which I, th I thought was fab. So make sure you stay for that. So yeah, X Men and Godzilla, I think, are going to are going to remain at the top. They're going to remain quite high, I think, for the, for the next few weeks. 
even though there are there are some films that are going to come and come in and, and make a dent. Edge of Tomorrow will 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 be up there. I think will make a few quid. Possibly Million Ways to Die in the West will as well. And I think next week Twenty Two Jump Street could well go number one, or it could it will be high up. I think that will really make an impact given how much the first one was liked and it's the Channing Tatum effect as well so all the women are going to flock to see that film so it, it will change over a few weeks but I think the dominance is, is expected and justified so we'll see how it changes very soon OK, next up review wise it's time for another comedy this time Seth MacFarlane's A Million Ways to Die in the West The ice. Why is it so big? So it doesn't melt. It's actually really interesting how they do it. It's this one company out in Boston that. Oh, oh, that went south so fast! Oh. The American West is a terrible place in time. Everything out here that's not you wants to kill you. Angry drunk people, hungry animals, outlaws. Oh, the fucking doctor. I couldn't save her. She had a splinter. Doc. What the hell were you supposed to do? Seth MacFarlane, then, obviously, is the creator of Family Guy and American Dad and The Cleveland Show, though we don't talk about that. And over the last few years, he's become one of the most well-known and well-liked comedy names in Hollywood. You know, he's gone and diversified into putting out albums, which are actually quite good, you know, of him crooning and stuff like that. He's obviously gone on to host last year's Oscars, which... Divided opinion. I personally really enjoyed him uh, hosting it and writing it and things like that. And he really does seem to be a bit of a Marmite figure. Certainly in the comedy he writes and the kind of jokes he tells and the films he's done. Obviously, you know, Family Guy is very, very popular. American Dad, quite popular, but less so. But with Ted, his first major movie two years ago, that split people a bit down the middle, I think, Ted. I really enjoyed Ted. I quite, I really, I really quite enjoyed it. You know, Mark Wahlberg and a, and a filthy talking stuffed bear. You know, it was, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And obviously there's going to be a TED 2 next year, which a lot of people will be looking forward to, myself included. But before then, McFarlane's made A Million Ways to Die in the West, which is his love letter, effectively, to old-school westerns and the Wild West and things like that. It's It's an area that potentially is quite good for comedy because westerns do take themselves very seriously quite often and they're they're a little bit over-the-top and melodramatic and things like that. And there's lots of little wiggle room to be able to quite adequately take the piss out of westerns you know City Slickers did it quite a bit Blazing Saddles obviously is the historical one that everyone reveres and this kind of wants to be a little bit like that but more of a modern day version as in one of the things that McFarlane is known for is not just his crude gags which you know were there in in Blazing Saddles and things like that but also his profanity so he's got characters effing and blinding all over the place you know effing and jeffing at each other and it's it's anachronistic in the sense that you know they they don't normally talk like that in the Wild West. I'm sure they did back then, because it was a lawless outlaw place. So it, kind of, it would kind of fit. But, you know, jokes where they're telling each other to F off and quite on-the-nose jokes about a whore, in this case Sarah Silverman playing a whore who keeps getting come on her face, basically. It's, it's things like that. It's very juvenile kind of humour. And it kind of would have worked a bit better had A Million Ways to Die in the West been a lot more evenly paced and evenly set out in terms of what it was trying to achieve it feels very all over the place uncertain because on the one hand it's this quite gross out juvenile comedy but on the other hand it's trying to be quite like a touching little romance and a very traditional romantic story in Seth MacFarlane plays this guy called Albert who is a bit of a bit of a loser really you know he's a sheep farmer in like 1882 Arizona and he is in love with Amanda Seyfried, who is, you know, punching above his weight with her, really. And she's a bit of a upper own ass kind of classy lady, or thinks she is. And she ends up going off with Neil Patrick Harris's, you know, mustachioed idiot, who owns a shop and he's successful and things like this. And so Albert's heartbroken, and then Charlize Theron comes into his life. And she's the one who befriends him and starts to teach him the ways in which he can win her back. And inevitably, they start to fall in love. Now... There's a few problems with this. A, you need to buy the fact that, lovely as Amanda Seyfried is, that anyone would want her over Charlize Theron, which doesn't compute at all, right? They, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I think if you had Charlize Theron being re- really nice to you and, and a little bit flirty and everything, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't think twice. You know, it's, 
So it's built on, on that kind of caveat, which I was sitting there thinking, yeah, no. The other thing is Seth MacFarlane playing the leading man. Now, it's, it's important to remember Ted in the sense that Ted was Mark Wahlberg, obviously, in the main, in the main character. And he did well. You know, he, he, he's showing more of a gift for comedy as time goes on. But Seth MacFarlane could quite easily have played the main character in Ted. You know, it, it, was, it was a character he, he could have taken on, but he didn't. He chose to stay behind the camera. And it worked better because Mark Wahlberg is quite a decent leading man. Seth MacFarlane is not a leading man. That's the problem. That is a big problem with this, in that he can, he's got certain elements of the character, but he does not work as a romantic lead at all. He's too, he's too nerdy. He's too goofy. He's too, he's, he just doesn't, he just doesn't fit. And, you know, he's got the voice of, you know, you constantly hear it in the back of your mind, hearing Brian Griffin from Family Guy. And when he's, the whole romance with Charlie Theron just doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't connect. They don't really have the chemistry. You can tell they had fun making it. And again, as I said before, that's a dangerous thing in comedy. But it's, it just doesn't click together. These elements don't click together. You know, on the one hand, it's got Sarah Silverman wiping jizz off her face. And then on the other hand, it's trying to sell this quite sweet little romance. And then on the other hand, you've got the dangerous aspect of it in that Liam Neeson plays an outlaw who is married to Charlize Theron. And she turns up to hide, basically, away because he's about to, you know, do a big robbery or something like that. And then he turns up and inevitably... Albert has to fight for her against him. You know, I'm not really spoiling anything to say that because you, if you've watched any films before, you'll know exactly where all this is going and it is massively predictable to a fault. And, you know, Neeson turns up and he's, you know, he's, he's Liam Neeson, so he's always good to watch, but he is in danger of becoming a little bit of a, his own cliche now and that he's basically playing, you know, the gruff Irish villain who's, yeah. And he, you know, Neeson has, has talked before about how he wants to do more comedy. It was that brilliant moment in uh, the Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant sitcom, Life's Too Short, where he, he comes on and he has this, this Google, YouTube this scene, because it's wonderful. He's there and he's, he's basically trying to do a bit with Ricky Gervais. And he talks about he wants to do more comedy. And that was obviously born out of the fact that Liam Neeson obviously does want to let his hair down a bit more. But he doesn't really get any comedy in this. He's more the butt of the joke, to an extent. That he's good, but in any other film, he'd make that film better. And it doesn't really work here. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You know, the whole components don't really fit. And you're left with this very scattershot, very uneven, very unsure of itself comedy that f- falls back quite a lot on, on cheap gags and quite crude gross-out moments. And, you know, it, it sets things up and never does anything with them. You know, there's this whole idea of, of the whole concept, A Million day- Ways to Die in the West, is this whole idea that the Wild West is this lethal place, you know, and you could die of anything at any point. And there are moments that illustrate that, but they seem really sort of uncertainly jammed in in order to facilitate this romance. They would have been, McFarlane would have been far better off focusing on that aspect of it. You know, the, the, and then he, he tries to get too much in the pot. You know, he's got this really bizarre sequence in which he takes, he takes this Indian potion and he has this massive trippy dream sequence. There's musical numbers in there. There's cameos a go-go. There are, admittedly, two wonderful cameos. And some people have had a go at these, but I think they're fab. They are absolutely fab. It's not so much cameos of actors, but it's more cameos of characters from other things, which is fantastic. One of which you'll just be possibly gleeful at. But you may already know about it anyway. But they're all fun and everything. But it just... And there are laughs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was laughing. There were moments that made me chuckle. There were a few laugh out loud moments, to be fair. Because I do like that juvenile kind of gross-out humour. I'm quite happy with that. You know, I'm not offended by Seth MacFarlane whatsoever. Some of his jokes are very near to the knuckle. But it, that, you know what? You should know what you're going in for with Seth MacFarlane. You know, he, he's well known for this. 
if you're not into that kind of thing, don't watch his films. So it's not that I'm offended by what he's doing. I just don't. I just. I just feel this could have been funnier. I feel like there's a better film lurking underneath the surface that he can't quite get to, for the fact that he, he doesn't. He's not the right leading man for it. His script is a bit all over the place. His direction's fairly good, but it doesn't really stand out. He doesn't make the most of all his gags, and it looks very nice. You know, it's very well shot, and it's it's production-wise, it's lovely. But it and it's decently acted by most people, but it just doesn't quite click together. So it's, it's certainly not the worst comedy you'll see this year at all. And it is worth a laugh. It is worth a look. But it's not one to rush out for. And there have definitely been better comedies, A, set in the Western genre, and B, made by Seth MacFarlane. What do you say I steal a bottle of whiskey and we hit the road? I love that idea. Your dick's out. Oh. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to this usual segment now of Black Hole Cinema, in which I get a friend on, I ask them what their favourite film is, and they tell me why. Simple as that. Simple is as simple does. And today, speaking of simple, I have on... (laughs) Sorry, already. Um, I have on uh, my good friend, Mr. Pete Gaskell. Uh, Pleasure to have you, Pete. <clears throat> Welcome to the black hole, which isn't the nicest introduction, I suppose. But, uh... <laughs> okay, so your favourite film, Shoot, is The Maltese Falcon, going way back to the nineteen forties. Fantastic! That is old school. That's the oldest school one I think we've had yet on Black Hole Cinema. Uh, the Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston in nineteen forty-one, I believe. Yeah, and starring the great late great Humphrey Bogart. And from, from a novel by Dashiell Hammett as well, uh, which, yeah. I, which I have actually read. Um, I've not seen the film, but I have read the book. Um, so I do know the story and things like that. Tell us a bit about The Maltese Falcon then, Pete. Tell us, tell us what it's all about. Well, basically, it's, it's <laughs> the archetype for every film noir detective thriller you, you can name, really. It's, it, goes, it basically creates the genre in film at any rate of a battered private eye dealing with a damsel in distress who becomes a mole, dealing with um, an incredible MacGuffin, a treasure called the Maltese Falcon, and uh, and various criminals and sundry chaps and chapettes who who want to grab their hands on it. And it's it's a twisty-twosty, fantastic thriller. Did you you just say twisty-twosty? I did indeed. You, you may have invented a new word. <laughs> twosty. <laughs> I've never heard the word twosty before, but I think we get the idea. So, it invented film noir. It, it, it pretty much did. I mean, it's, the other tropes existed in the books, but it was the first time it was ever really put across the film. So, anything you can think of down to the, um, the, the blinds in the office, the, the battered hat, the trench coat, the, the narration. The cigarettes all the time. <laughs> Everything, every sort of little uh, accoutrements and accessories to detective that was uh, basically extended the mess. So it kind, of, it kind of put a lot on the map of the kind of things we then saw in, I mean, plenty of films from the 1940s onwards up to, you know, right. the modern day kind of, if, things like even computer games like L.A. Noir, you know, oh, they, well, and, and that kind and of the, stuff. Yeah, and, and uh, like Sin City is yes. probably the closest film adaptation about genre really, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, surprising to discover this was actually John Huston's debut as director. Mm. Which is, and as a writer. A writer and director is his first and, ever script and his first ever film. And remarkably, he's probably one of, one of his best and most remembered, really, because it is... It is one of those films that, when you look back, and it, obviously now we're talking 70 years old, so it's, it is towards the early days, really, of, of motion pictures in Hollywood, in a way. It's, and it's during the war as well. And there, was, there didn't seem to be that, from looking back, there didn't seem to be that many really great films made during the Second World War. Obviously, it's before the, America came into the war, so they were slightly separate from it, but made it a very you know pivotal time for... For the world, really, and it's it's just what what it, what is it about it that you that makes it your? Fa- I mean, you know, we've got seventy years of history after this. What is it that makes it your favourite film? What does it have that makes it last this long? For me, it has it has a delightful, beautiful mixture of it being um, a story that's 
deep and, and enjoyable at the same time. A plot that it's even even on multiple rewatches, it still hooks to you in every time you watch it. Um, mainly because Humphrey Bogart is just the coolest man of all time. <laughs> and this is the role that basically sent him off from being a sort of character actor into being the definitive leading man of a generation. I mean, everything, Rick Blaine, Casablanca, Philip Marlowe, very obviously in The Big Sleep, everything through to the African Queen, Treasure Sierra Madre, that's all from the Maltese Falcon in playing Sam Spade. It's, yeah. it's interesting to read up on this and that, find out that he wasn't the first choice. The first choice was actually George Raft, who was e- equally famous. Perhaps he, his, his name hasn't quite rang through the decades like Bogart, but he was equally famous, if not more so, at the time. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and Bogart was, you know, drafted in because apparently Raft didn't want to work with John Huston because nobody knew who he was. And ironically, then John Huston's gone on to be one of the most famous Hollywood directors, grizzled Hollywood directors of the 20th century. But imagine, you know, imagine if, if things had been different, you know, if, if George Raft had played Sam Spade. I mean, would it would it have been the same? Would would it have would it have resonated? Is it was this made for Bogart, really? It's not it's not one really, isn't it? But I think he just he, was, he just was Sam Spade. I don't know how it would have been with anyone else in the part, but he just took it and ran with it. Every every line is is so dry and deadpan that I, I can't think of anybody else playing. Mm. I really can't. He, he made the role. And just a little odd thing as well is that he's in every scene. It's, it's a proper leading man. Yeah. In, in every single scene in the film. But if I remember rightly, it's the same in the book, in that, you know, Spade, it's, Sam Spade pretty much it, carries the entire story. It's, well, it's easier in a book, obviously, because it can be like a, a almost a first-person protagonist, but in a film it's very rare to see that. Usually you know, pick up shots and scenes, yeah. you know, location scenes and everything, but in, in this case, yeah. The, um, the interesting comparing the book to a film is, you've read a book, Tony, mm. The plot's a bit dense, isn't it? Yeah, it very. I mean, it's mm. it's it's been a while since I read it, but it's mm. it really does get quite complicated, mm. and it's and I think the reason that they that Houston probably chose to film it with Bogart carrying every scene is because it lands Sam Spade right in the middle of this mystery and this corruption, and he has to basically figure out how to get how to get through it. But you know, it, it's, it's him in the middle of this this web of intrigue, and to actually. So actually then adapted it onto screen and made it, you know, having scenes with the femme fatale, Bridget and all these other characters without it would have maybe seen, maybe seemed odd. You know, it, may, it wouldn't have worked. I think it had to be Spade who carried it through, like like we're with him in the book constantly. Going it through. works. Yeah. It, it, gives, it gives it a centre to, to work around. Yeah. What I was going to say was, is actually Houston in adapting the book. It's, it's simplified. It yeah. <laughs> seem odd when you watch it because it's not simple. It's not A to B, but he simplified it from being sort of a tangled mass of contradictions and sort of crafted a film out of it. And it's it's one of those rare films that everything makes sense. There's no fat. It's just a 90-minute blast. Yeah. Even with a 20-minute final scene. And it, exactly. They're, and it's it's tightly, tightly written. And, and, I mean, you'd have to... To, to make this work, you know, you I think you'd have to do it in that sense, really, and to make it to make it fly. Do you think it's interesting that you bring that up? Do you think that it, when when they were, I mean, you know, it, it was there wasn't that many, I guess, adaptations, as many adaptations knocking about back then. And it is, do, do you feel maybe that they just would construct an adaptation and a screenplay tighter with something like this than we would get today? I don't know because I just I just think. Five years film forward, you make a big sweep was made, and terrific film as it is, it makes no sense. <laughs> even well, even when Raymond Chandler was writing, had no idea who commits the murders. Yeah. And and the film basically is very faithful to that. Mm. And um, and it's a mess in terms of plot, but it's beautiful characters. But Maltese Falcon is a perfect mesh of it too. So I don't know. I don't know whether it's whether it's a case of that or whether they've just found a way to somehow, with this plot, you know, strip the fat away from it and make it just just a, a straight down the middle, albeit with quite a few neat little twists and turns, but a, a proper, proper thriller rather than just a complete tangle of motivations and, and, and some sort of spiders web. 
Because that's what you need, really, isn't it? To make a, to make a, a film like this work, it needs to, it needs to move. It needs to be exciting. It needs to be tense. You know, it needs to it needs to have all those elements with a strong think, leading man. You know, it does. But, but the combination of having the leading man play brilliantly, and also um, having the MacGuffin itself to, to use the Hitchcockian term there for, for the, what the Falcon is about, MacGuffin. It's this treasured statuette which is worth. XXX amount of you know, dollars, pounds, whatever you want to you know, use, and um, and everyone wants it, and and it's it's just it's just there, it's just, it's a symbol really for for everyone's um, greed. Yeah. <laughs> it works beautifully. Yeah. So, particularly when you get the, the combination of um, Sydney Green Street and Peter Warre teaming up as as the the rather conniving villains. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. It's got it's got a strong cast around Bogart, hasn't it? Indeed, indeed, yeah. I mean, um, Mary Astor is, plays Bridget O'Shaughnessy, or whatever you want to call her, um, and she's mm-hmm. terrific. I've never seen her in anything else before since, so I don't know if it's flashing the pattern. But um, with Green Street and Huawei, those two, you know, worked to team up again several times again. I think Casablanca being the most famous yeah. one. But weirdly, it was Green Street's first film as well. <laughs> Yeah, and he wasn't a young man. No. <laughs> he was about, what, 60, 70 years old at the time? Something mm. like 60 years it, old. It, 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 was, it was knocking on, but he's, um, and, he's, and he pulls it out. Because Green Street and Huawei, it's just a random little bit of info. But it was after then that the um, atomic bombs were named, that we got to Washington and Nagasaki, that my little boy. Is that really? Yes. My goodness, mate. So I don't know if that's the legacy they wanted to attach themselves to. I was going to say that's quite the legacy, but, really. But um, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, acting, though, they 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 deserved a legacy because particularly in, in this film, Green Street is Goodman and, and Peter Wally is Joel Cairo are just incredibly slimy characters, and, and that's that's what you want in terms of this as well. Villains who are villainous, to put it bluntly. Yes, and it it fits the very hard boiled tone of, of, of Hammett's source material, really, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you, you've you've got two of the, like I said earlier, you know, John Huston, it was this grizzled, quite grizzled director from this tough family. And then you've got Bogart, who you, you couldn't get more of a, a, a tough guy, you know, lead with Bogart. I mean, the, the guy... <laughs> The guy ended up dying fairly young because he was just so hard-boiled in real life. Just <laughs> you know? um, hard-boiled in every sense, you know? Yeah. Just chiselled out of pure granite and iron, that man. So to play a character like Sam Spade, who is very detached and driven and, you know, you do not fuck with him, basically. It's, it's a perfect combo, really, to have this very you know, tough leading character in this hard-boiled story that... Like you say, it's got no fat on it. It takes no prisoners. It's but it's also like twisty, twisty twonky or whatever your term was. Twisty twosky, yes. Twisty The thing is, it moves. Even though there's, I mean, you see films nowadays which move really quickly, and that's because there's a lot of cut sort of scenes, and and that's how it moves fast, isn't it? It's like you know, three hundred scenes in a, in, a, in a film because it moves up, boom, 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 boom. But this is um, this. Relatively few scenes. I don't know how many there are, but there aren't that many. Like I said, the final one's twenty minutes long. Yeah. But it's a dialogue that makes it speed. The dialogue is is you know it's a hard by all dialogue, which is all coached in metaphor and people going blah 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. It's that. It's it's the dialogue is like a machine gun, and it's it's dry, it's witty, but it's also it hits the point. There's no faff, no fat. Yeah. It's a dialogue that drives it. Yeah. And it's just a pleasure to. It's one of those films you don't actually need to see them. You could you could just close your eyes and just listen to the movie, and it's still fantastic. Mm. Now that yeah, and that speaks to a strong script, great performance. You know, if it was a if it was a radio mm. play, you know, you could just make it a radio play or something like that, and it, would. it could be. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, from again from what I've what I've read about about it, Houston was very meticulous with it, and and if if that's the case, then it shows because he wanted it to be very. He tailored the screenplay. It was quite all laid out, and it was it was very precise. And that's I think that when, when a filmmaker does that, it comes across on screen. Definitely, the script itself is massive. Mm. If you look at if you look at the script, it's popping around on the internet in places. The detail it goes into is is, is immense. The detail about the, the office and, and detail even even Sam's appearance. Mm. <laughs> which is a, a bit rubbish because you know what it's going to look like anyway it's basically Bogart but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. the point, the point is, is, is it goes into it goes to a lot of detail 
which when you don't see when you translate onto screen because you just take it as red. But it's it's there. It's all it's all being done in the prequelling stage to make it seem like it's just yeah. perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's an odd film to dissect, really, particularly particularly for me because it's, it's literally nothing I can think of that's wrong with it. It's it's just tight. It's dry. It's 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 sheer poetry. And that's that's why that's why you've chosen it to talk mm-hmm. about. I mean, the whole point of this is for me to say, w- watch the Maltese Falcon. Oh, why? Listen to Pete. Because he'll tell you why, and this is it. Because, you know, this is one of those films that people will have heard of, or or one of those books people will have heard of, but they won't have experienced either, you know. And quite a lot of people won't, anyway, because it's so old now, you know, and it's uh, it's of a completely different age, and it's not the kind of film that pops up on television very often, and things like that. Oh, no, it's sort of a BBC 2 or 11 a.m. at the weekend. This isn't that sort of film now, but it's... It doesn't deserve to be. No, exactly. And it, it's one of those that people should, you know, maybe go and seek out. I mean, in terms of its legacy, and we talked about that earlier before, do you think there have been many films that have really come close to matching what was done with this? I'd say the closest one in terms of a film noir to begin with is probably um, Double Indemnity that came out only a couple of years later. And that, that was um, actually written by Raymond Chandler, from my own. And that's very similar in terms of how it's constructed, etc. Mm. Other than that, in terms of in terms of other detective films, I think the closest one other than this is probably Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, Jack Nicholson, which is again very similar in, in, in how tight and how fast it is. And in terms of a film with a legacy, there's there's, there's very few that, that that can set that forward. You're, you're probably looking like some of the previous devices of things about Snow White, for example. Yeah. Same with Disney, same with benchmark for all Disney films or probably Star Wars. Again, for legacy for example, it just creates something entirely new and, and whole new genres are expected from. And for, forever aped by people and trying Exactly. To... It's, it's, um, it's a, I mean, I, I, people might say no, because the, the Chandler books, the Dishil Hammett books, etc., they've been going since before, obviously, for obvious reasons. Mm. But I still think every detective film owes, owes a debt to the Maltese Falcon. I, I think I think that's that's a fair comment to make. Really, mm. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Really, to to finish, mm. then why why finally one last reason? If I say to you, why should people now go out and seek seek out the Maltese Falcon? Wrap it up. Give us a final reason. Because if you know what's going to happen from the from the opening. Yeah, yeah. A, you're a smarter man than me, and you know, B, probably one of the smartest people in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> enjoy enjoy your Mensa scholarship. Yes. But uh, other than that, it's just everything you could um, want a film to be wrapped in a neat little bundle with the coolest reading man of all time. And to borrow the last line from the film, it's the stuff that dreams are made of. That's a great summation. Go and check out the Maltese Falcon, everybody. And thanks very much, Pete, for that recommendation. Thank you. Time for our last review today, and it's the Time Loop Action Spectacular Edge of Tomorrow. Time for our last review today, and it's the Time Loop Action Spectacular Edge of Tomorrow. Time for our last review today, and it's the Time Loop Action Sci-Fi Spectacular Edge of Tomorrow. I'll stop now. I'm going to tell you a story. First, it's going to sound ridiculous, but the longer I talk... We have to find the keys. The more rational it's going to appear. I can't believe you found coffee. Sugar, right? Yeah. Hold on. Three, like three. How many times have we been here? How many times? For me, it's been an eternity. I'm aware that I probably didn't even get those loops right when I was trying to make that really bad gag at the beginning, but there you go. Edge of Tomorrow, then, is... A time loop story. And I love time loop stories in fiction. I, I really do. There's, there have been some fantastic ones made. Obviously, the biggest one is Groundhog Day, which is the one everybody everybody knows. And Groundhog Day is a wonderful film. But I kind of like them more when they're, they're actually inside a science fiction kind of concept. You know, there was a great one a few years ago called Triangle, which had Melissa Georgian, which was set around a cruise ship. And that one was really good. That was really creepy and horror-based. That's an excellent time loop drama. And there's been quite a few over the years. You know, there's been some great ones on television as well. You know, Star Trek The Next Generation did a really good one called Cause and Effect, which I would recommend to anybody 
The X Files did a great one as well called Monday, which was about a bank robbery, and it was great. And there've been various ones done in Stargate and all these kind of TV shows. So the great thing about a time loop drama, obviously, is that you can do anything you want, really, and you can get away with it. You can hit the reset button. The, the biggest thing you can really do is kill off your main characters, and that's what tends to happen in all these time loop stories. The characters get killed off, you reset the button, and it's about them trying to defeat their fate. And that's exactly the same thing with Edge of Tomorrow, which originally was called All You Need Is Kill. And I've said before, I hated that title. It was the name of the book by a Japanese author, whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce but it was written about 10 years ago and I thought that was a dreadful name for a film because I'd, it's grammatically incorrect and I just don't understand it. People have said to me, oh, well, it's far less generic than Edge of Tomorrow, but I kind of disagree. I think Edge of Tomorrow is quite evocative and interesting. So I'm glad they kept they got rid of that title anyway. But, but yeah, it came from this source novel, which I haven't read, and it's got a great central hook, which is basically that this alien race called the Mimics have invaded the world and they've started taking over Europe basically and various parts of the planet and we're losing the battle and they can basically mimic our actions and, and they, they, they're getting the upper hand on humanity and there's a big World War II parable basically about this whole thing in that we're, we're sending over ground forces on beaches and things like that to try and push them back and when it's not working and we're losing men by the thousands and all this and, and they're trying to spin it you know, in the propaganda sense that we we need soldiers, and then we've got there's the and Emily Blunt plays this poster girl for these new machines that have been built to defeat the mimics, and and it's very it's very World War World War One World War Two in that sense. Brendan Gleeson plays a general who is a complete takeoff of General Haig in World War One. You know the general who basically sent hundreds of thousands of men to their death over the trenches and things like that. So it's it's got that satirical underpinning at the start. You know it starts with a lot of news footage and, and intercut and things like that. And Tom Cruise comes into it as kind of like a propaganda guy for the army. You know, he's there on the news and he's trying to shill this army as, as some, uh, this war as something that they, they can win when they can't. They're blatantly going to lose. But he ends up by, by, you know, happenstance, ending up on the front lines. And he's in, it, this is where, at, at first, I started watching this and I was worried because I thought, have they miscast Tom Cruise? Because Tom Cruise at the start, his character's a coward. He's a wimp. He's a complete, like, he's, well, he's almost a deserter. And he gets locked up or, well... well at first locked up and then he gets thrown onto the front lines because he's he's a deserter and he has to face Bill Paxton who plays this uh, Kentucky kind of uh, colonel guy who's really stern and all this and then he's got this assortment of a team and and then he go he, he's he's bricking it you know he goes onto these front lines and it's like Normandy when they when they go onto the front lines you know it's on the beaches it's this carnage going on people blowing up everywhere and all this kind of stuff it's, it's really quite well done and it's again it's very evocative of, of wartime and then he dies and obviously he comes back and the day has started again. And then, and that's where the film, that's where Doug Lyman, the director, really kicks this in really well. Because it's a bit of a meandering setup, to be honest, and a little bit corny. And as I say, I was worried about that they got the casting wrong. But it's then you realise that it was all for a purpose. Because Tom Cruise, this is actually one of the best performances I think he's given in quite a while, actually. Because he manages to take this character from a complete coward, and he's not faking it, he is genuinely a coward, to a guy who is battle-hardened and has to go through this ordeal of time resetting in the whole point being that he's the key to them defeating this army because they're basically being led into a trap and the mimics are going to slaughter them. And he starts to figure out that, well, my actions here, if I get the day right, can potentially save the day. And then he, he tools up with Emily Blunt and it's there are plot reasons why Emily Blunt is very important to this and she ends up playing a big part in it and she's she's quite good even though at first you wouldn't necessarily think she'd work as like this battle-hardened kind of cold-hearted bitch but she's not there's more to her than that but she is quite good you know she's clearly bolted up for the role and she's physically impressive and things like that and they do they do work together quite well and it would be churlish to really go into too much detail because it's it been it's important you really watch Edge Ed tomorrow and, and enjoy it for what it is but what it does very well is Certainly the middle, the middle section of the film is the best part because it really gets really cleverly into the plot mechanics of, of a time loop story in that Doug Lyman is quite happy and the script is excellent because it, it really does sort of cut things very fast and it, it, allow, it, doesn't, it never feels repetitive. And this is, this is the big danger with a time loop story and it could so easily feel like it's, it's repetitive and it's going around the houses and it's repeating things and we're seeing things the same way. But this doesn't do that. You know, it very much forwards the story while forwarding the character arcs at the same time and keeping these things on an even playing field so you, you feel like you're in the middle of all this with them and that's a big that's a big part of it you know it, and it moves like the clappers you know it's really going on it 
And it's just very well constructed, very well put together. You know, this kind of story isn't easy to tell. It's deceptively difficult because a time loop has to work in the sense that you know what's going to happen, the characters know what's going to happen, but in order for the plot to develop, we, things have got to change. They're, they've got to adapt. The characters have got to adapt. And they've got to try and influence events. And that's what they have to do. And, and it's a great puzzle in that they have to work out exactly what they have to do in this point to, to get through to the next and, there, there, and it allows for some nice moments of comedy actually I and mean, there's one moment where Tom Cruise is having to um, escape his platoon and, he, and he, he, he's going to use this, this van that's on coming as cover and he rolls under the van now normally when, when someone would roll under a van they'd grab onto the underside they'd be taken off by the van he rolls under the van and he gets crushed to death and then the guys there go well, what, what, did, what's going, what did he do that for is he mad and then he wakes up again and then he gets it right the second time and he rolls under the van and things like that I thought were very good because it, it's, it's proving the whole idea of the mechanics of this you wouldn't be able to do things right the first time if you were stuck in this kind of time loop and this is a similar thing that happened in Grand Dog Day as well you would mess up you would have to go back and do things again and again and again in order to get them right but that's what's really quite well done about this you know it's not it's not innovative in the sense that it hasn't been done before you know there have been films that have done this before and done it very well but this one is done well the only problem is then once it kind of get once it gets into the final act and there are certain elements of this that have been tied up and resolved it becomes a little bit more generic unfortunately it kind of it doesn't necessarily go downhill but it's very it's already a very big shouty blustery actiony cgi loud movie but in the last act it becomes a little bit too much of just that really and it kind of loses that cleverness that it had towards the for a good hour or so in the middle and it builds kind of to a climax that for me was a bit too hollywood really it was a bit too easy and you know a big one recently was source code that was a few years ago source code by duncan jones which was really 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 cleverly done it was a similar kind of idea in a way and it had a very sci-fi bent to it but the ending of source code was one of those that i came out the cinema and i was with uh, my friend Matt Latham and I, and, and I, I think Lee Crimes. I was came, I came at the cinema and I went, okay, well, what does that mean? And there was this great moment at the end where it was very ambiguous, and we had to we had to then sit down. I think we went to the pub and we picked apart the story, the entire plot, and we went right. Well, now I came out of Edge of Tomorrow and I didn't do that. I came out of Edge of Tomorrow and I went, um, well, okay, that happened because of reasons, you know. And there, there are it, it kind of relies on a bit of fuzzy sort of alien logic that doesn't really explain itself which I thought was a bit of a shame whereas source code genuinely is about a time mechanic going on and a bit of a, a bit of a trick but this doesn't have that it's more just a, a plot reason and, and I I wasn't so keen on that I didn't think it was as brave as it could have been in the end but I think the journey getting us there is, was very good and, and, and Doug Lyman's managed to make a very big sci-fi blockbuster an original project that is not just guns ammo and no brains you know it, it does have an element of brains to it it also loses that satirical underpinning the further it gets into the film as well which is a bit of a shame it kind of loses that element to it which it had at the beginning so it has to sacrifice things in order to get to where it wants to go but on the whole it's a lot it's a lot of fun actually but it's 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 one that will make you think and keep up with the story as it's going along and i think that combination of blockbuster is really what we want all of them to be so edge of tomorrow is definitely worth a look how many times have we been here what are you not telling me? It's going to be dark in a few hours. I'll curl up by the fire and open a bottle of wine. We should just reset. Whoa! There we go then, the end of yet another Black Hole Cinema. Thank you very much for listening this week to the normal episode in which we've had one decent film, one middling film and one, fair to say, dud. So it's been fairly evenly placed this week. Next week... Maybe a week off, for it is my birthday next week. I am 32 years young, and there is quite an epic celebration in the works, which some of you who are listening may well be attending. But I don't know really if I'm going to get a chance to see next week's new releases, chiefly 22 Jump Street, which I don't think I'll get to see until the start of the week after, quite possibly. I'm also yet to see Maleficent, and that is something that is on the cards, and I'm waiting for a friend to get back to me to go and see that so that may well be in the next one there's also Grace of Monaco which is supposed to be so bad I'm very much looking forward to seeing if that's as bad as it seems so yeah there may not be an episode next weekend or that it might be a little bit late we'll have to see I very much doubt it'll be out next Sunday but so this will have to do for a while and as ever we're on Twitter 
Black Hole Cinema at Black Hole Cinema. Please let us know your thoughts on Facebook on the Facebook page Black Hole Cinema and our lovely hosts www.bznetwork.co.uk full of fiction full of goodness so please come and let me know what you think of the podcast and keep me apprised of your thoughts if you if you want to be on it send me a message we'll try and work something out there's still a backlog of people who've recorded who haven't got on yet but I am getting there and you, you they will be on in time talking about their favourite film lots of good things planned lots of things in the pipeline so Black Hole Cinema will be back very soon for more film goodness but whatever you're doing this week as we kick our way into June have a great week watching films and take care of yourselves see you later (laughs) 